you absolutely seen, super. Have you seen the bridge? I have seen Brune. Forbiddelson, <laughs> oh, Brune, and you know I was I did a lecture and uh, in LA, and uh, a woman I I've forgotten her name. She came up. She was talking to me, and I went, "You're Danish, aren't you?" She goes, how did you know? And I went, I, I watch all these Danish shows. And I went, like that, which they, and she was like, oh. I was like, they translate that as bloody hell. Does it not mean that? And she goes, it is far worse than that. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylog team. So today we're going to talk the murder on the Orient Express. So overblown. I know. Um, as always, if you want to get in touch, uh, we are on Twitter at The Story Toolkit, and uh, you can get in touch and email us direct through the website, thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com. And if you want to skip the synopsis and go straight to the meat, uh, then we're at uh, 12.55. Yeah. So, we're going to talk about The Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. Uh, recently, there was a film of it, starring Ken- and directed by... Kenneth Branagh and it had everyone in Hollywood in it. Everyone in Hollywood. Uh, it had Michelle Pfeiffer. It had Daisy Ridley. It had Johnny Depp. Uh, Willem Dafoe. Penelope uh, Cruz. Penelope Cruz. Everyone in Hollywood. I can't remember. There was lots of people. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, and it was really fun. Okay. 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 So catch us next week. <laughs> um, okay. Do the uh, synopsis. Okay. So. Orient Express. Okay, so this is interesting. I saw the trailer for the murder, murder on the Orient Express, and I got angry because I thought, look, if you're going to do a Poirot film, fine, but why are you going to do Orient Express? It's the most famous Poirot story. Everyone's done it. Why? And I went around and discovered that no one knew who done it. Mm-hmm. No one knew the Orient Express. Nobody. Everyone I asked, well, I don't know how it goes. I'm, really? So I guess they picked the right film um, <laughs> because no one knew. Um, so obviously there will be spoilers for the murder on the Orient Express now, but uh, it will yeah, be filled I, with I, humble pie. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, then go watch it or watch one of the many versions. Which is your favourite version? Um, I would have said the 1974 Albert Finney version, but I did just rewatch it and it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I prefer I prefer the Branagh one. The I have my issue with the Branagh one is it's it's all CGI. Even Branagh is CGI. It's there's too much CGI in it, and I love the fact how the other one looks, but the other one is not. Just doesn't have the same. It's just not as good, uh, even though it's got a crazy cast as well. Mm. Ingrid Bergman, Vanessa Redgrave, John Gielgud, Albert Finney, Sean Connery. He's not Poirot, but he is in it. Um, is Sean Connery? No. When you said, before you said there's a Sean Connery version, is this the one you were talking yeah. about? Yeah, because when you said Sean Connery version, I thought you meant, oh, Sean Connery as Poirot. Yeah, that's, which, yeah which would be which hilarious. I, but no. Yeah, I would see. Um, I, I really like the Alfred Molina one. Uh, Alfred Molina did a Poirot, and it was supposed to be a TV series, I think, for CBS, I think. Uh, and it was set in the modern day. 
Ah. So it was contemporary. And so, you know, they had mobile phones or something mm. like that, and that kind of stuff. But it was set on the Orient Express, like they... It was cool. I actually really quite liked it. I was trying to track it down, but it was a failed pilot, unfortunately. But Alfred Molina as Poirot is a fantastic yeah. choice. Anyway, at this point, if people have skipped the synopsis, then um, they've skipped all this. So let's actually do the synopsis. Oh, yeah, so the synopsis. The synopsis of Murder on the Orient Express. So there is a Belgian detective named Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot is going to England for some business. Uh, it's a last-minute thing, and he's going to take the Orient Express out of Baghdad and so on. And um, <clears throat> there's an issue with the... It's winter time, and it, bizarrely, despite the fact that it's winter, um, the entire first-class cabin, cabin has been booked, uh, which is normally not the case. However, Poirot is friends uh, with the guy who runs the, the train company, so he manages to get him one of the secret bunks as it were there's a separate uh, berth in cabin number four or something uh so he manages to get in there he has to double up with someone but he gets to be on the train and get to london so they go on the train and uh as is the case it is a murder mystery someone dies now what happens is a guy on the train in this case it's played by johnny depp uh asks poirot to basically be his bodyguard because he's been getting death threats and he wants to find out who's sending him the death threats and he wants Poirot to find them and deal with it. And Poirot is so disgusted by the guy, uh, his his demeanour, that he just says no. He turns him down. And of course this guy, well, the next day everyone wakes up and the guy has been murdered. He's been stabbed 12 times in what seems a very bizarre stabbing, because the stab wounds are in different angles and different depths and so on, so like it's like a frenzied stabbing. And Poirot goes in and he's going to try and solve this. Now what's happened is because it's winter, there's a, a bit of an avalanche that blocks the train tracks, so they are stuck until they can be dug out of the snow. So while they are stuck, they have food and everything, it means no one can get off the train, and so that means that the murderer must be on the train. So Poirot starts doing his Poirot stuff. He starts using his little cresselles and he starts picking up all the clues and he makes points about things like there are too many clues. There's t this is It's it's a very weird uh, uh, crime scene. And he does what Poirot always does. He tries to put together the timeline. He interviews everyone. Tries to get things. And what it turns out is that uh, in the backstory, uh, a famous uh, military man called uh, Armstrong his daughter was kidnapped and held for ransom. And his little daughter ended up dead. Um, and because of this, uh, the two kidnappers, they got one of the kidnappers, but the accomplice escaped. An accomplice named Cassetti. Uh, and it turns out the victim is Cassetti. That the guy who got killed, Johnny Depp, is the guy who killed the daughter and got away with it. And that really, this, this guy is not responsible for the death of the daughter. He's actually responsible for five other deaths. Uh, he's responsible because the um, the parents killed themselves. Um, the one of the maids, uh, who was uh, uh, who was um, who one of the, the cooks or the maids or other for the uh, the household, she was thought to be part of it as an inside job, and so she kills herself and so on. So there's like a whole bunch of people that die as a result of this thing. It destroys so many lives, and so he's it turns out he's Cassetti. And so as Poirot is doing his investigations with the 12 people, 
who are in the first class cabin, because remember it was fully booked, he discovers they all have links, the Cassetti and the Armstrongs, they all have links. And um, and so he, he starts putting it together, and then we get the parlor scene. And the parlor scene is that wonderful scene that Poirot does, where he gets all the suspects in one room and tells you what happened. And... Um, and then, uh, uh, and one of the things I loved about the Albert Finney version that I really do love about it, that sort of tr- other than the set, right? One of because the, you, you know they got the train going through actual things, great. But one of the things I love is when Poirot does the parlor scene and he starts telling you the clues. They flash back to earlier when they set gave you the clue, and I love that. I loved that as a kid. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite little things. It's it's just an adorable thing. You're watching the thing and it flashes back, and it's like you missed that, didn't you? <laughs> I'm like, yep, I'm fine with this. This is great. <laughs> so, but the uh, Brano version doesn't do that. But uh, he has the parlor scene and he lays it out, and he basically says there's two theories. One theory is a guy, uh, because this guy is Cassetti and he was in with the mafia, someone in the Serbian mafia or something came in, killed him, and escaped. Because the train stopped. So they got off the train and they ran away. That's one option. And he got dressed in a bellhop uniform that's missing a button. There's all the clues. That's one option. Mm. The other option is, you all did it. <laughs> right? All 12 of you have been conspiring for years. And you finally managed to work out a master plan. And you've killed him. And uh, the whole problem that messed this up is that I was on the train. Because, because I was on the train, you, you booked out the entire... 12 compartments you booked everything out because the secretary of of Cassetti is one of the 12 people so they all made sure they were all in communication they all booked the the train all that stuff and the whole point was if Poirot wasn't on there they'd kill him and no one would know Mm. right until they get to where they're going and then they get off the train and it's too late it's finished no one would know what happened and it would be done but because Poirot was there they had to stage a murder mystery which is why they do things like they don't kill him when they they get, <clears throat> there's a there's a bit where um the bellhop uh knocks on the door of Carsetti and Carsetti responds from the from inside right and Poirot knows this trick which is you have someone else say it and the person's already dead in fact i believe that is a plot point in death on the nile really yes uh so, so i think it might be death on the nile uh, it's, it's christy has definitely used that trick before so poirot knows this trick right so he's seen it before so, so in his head he goes oh that tells me that he was dead before the knock on the door at which point everyone has an alibi hmm. and that's when he goes no 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 you did that to make me think he was dead but he's still alive and then you killed him afterwards when you, none of you have an alibi right so that's it's just one of those lovely little tricks. So he puts it all together and he says, look, you all did it. And Branagh really sells this point because he's built up Poirot in such a way that Poirot is very um, strict about justice. And so it's a real big decision for him whether or not to let them get away with murder. And uh, he, along with the guy who owns the train and stuff, with the blessing of that guy, they decide, yeah, we're just going to let you off. We're not. We're gonna come up. We're gonna say it's the the, the Serbian mafia thing. It'll go. <clears throat> everyone will be happy with that. It's a very simple thing. That's done. And all of you were destroyed by this guy, Cassetti, because they were all related in some way. They were the cook. The they were the relative. They were this. They were that. They were the mother. They were the godmother. They were this person. They were that person. Every single person in that 
of tw- all, out of all 12 had their lives and their families destroyed by Cassetti's crime. So it's like, okay, done. And that's the film. And then uh, it ends with, and the film ends with him going on to, um, what do you call it? Death on the Nile. Or Evil Under the Sun. It's one of I always get those two confused. Yusinov did both of them. Peter Yusinov was... They, they say there's been, a, there's been a murder on the Nile. Yeah, I always get confused because uh, Yusinov did a, did a, both Evil Under the Sun and Death on the Nile. And so I always get confused over which one's which. But of course, Death on the Nile's in Egypt and Evil Under the Sun, I think, is set in Spain. Right. But they're both beach-related. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're a kid and you watch them back-to-back over and over again a thousand times and wearing out your VHS, you know, after a while, they kind of blur. VHS... Yeah, man. How old are you, Granddad? Um, Thirty-eight soon. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's get before we get to the meaty points. Yes, let's get into genre and just sketch that out quickly. Okay, so Murder on the Orient Express is a very traditional murder mystery, which of course is something that Agatha Christie really sort of pioneered. I don't think she invented it, um, because I think Oedipus Rex is a murder mystery. I think. Can't remember, but uh, she definitely she definitely made it a household thing, and uh, as is always the case when uh, someone does that, it inevitably uh, leads to copycats and cliches. Mm-hmm. But Agatha Christie was a was a real genius of it, um, because she kept it kept inverting the form. So you know you have a mystery who done it and like well murder on the express they all did it. If you think about it, right, it's like, which of the one suspects did it? And Agatha Christie at some point must have just gone, how about if every suspect is the killer? So all of them are killers, right? Which is just a great idea. <laughs> okay, but then you have to come up with, well, why would all 12, how would this work? And so this one of the great things about the Orange Express is that crime is interesting because of all the 12 stab wounds, they're all different. And she probably got it from Caesar. Right. Right? Like the, that thing, but like, yeah. 12 it's, people, the, it's, that's, a, that's a jury. That's a specific clue in the Albert Finney version where Sean Connery goes, no, you don't just kill a man, you know. You give him a trial by his peers. 12, 12 good men straightened through. And that's when Poirot goes, mon dieu. <laughs> right? And he, he puts it together that there's 12 of them. Um, and so that they're a jury. What is it... it I mean, I, I had real fun watching it. Like, yes. real fun watching it. Because you didn't Cause, know. Because I didn't know who did it. I, I, I knew who did it. Um, but <laughs> had, ha- Hannah did. There was this p- a particular point uh, very quite early on um, when the, he'd um, discovered the body and he was listing like the things that he could... Yes. The, the, the clues in the room, basically. Yeah. Um, and Hannah afterwards went, Ah, yeah, no, I think I remember. Um, mm. And then we just kind of went on and watched yeah. it. But the whole thing, I was thinking, well, who... who who did do it? Yeah. Who did do it? And I made a point towards the end of saying that the, the one of the conventions, I guess, of uh, a murder mystery is that at some point you have to suspect everybody. Yeah. At some point as a writer, you have to give the audience a reason to think that they do. Because if you yeah. make it too one-sided, then obviously it's yeah. very obvious. So you need to kind of spread it out. Yeah. Um, and that was the point where I, ha- I had that thought. I thought, well, at some point you have to suspect everybody and also god damn it the stab wounds oh my god <laughs> the stab wounds, that's when right? i realized yeah it's such a great clue the 12 stab wounds because there's all these other clues in yeah. that room and poro makes that really great point of there's too many clues <laughs> there's just too many 
and he, he can tell there's something suspect well, because I, of it. I wanted to mention that clue specifically because the Tostadmans. Yeah, because for me that was the give that was the giveaway clue. That was yeah. the the one yeah. piece of evidence which really does okay. Of course, more than per, one person did it. Yeah. Um, and he gives it to you front and centre. Yeah. Right at the start, yeah. he says, "Look at this. <laughs> Look at this, audience. This is a really important clue, and yeah. you will forget about it now because you will be too intrigued." And what's also interesting is how you make the suspect thing work. What you have to do with the suspect thing is, <clears throat> for example, if you explain their motive, you hide their opportunity, right? So they give them an alibi. So if they have the motive, but they don't, but they have an alibi, then you go, well, they couldn't have done it. Right. Or you give them the opportunity, but you don't give them a motive. It's like, right. they could have done it, but why? <laughs> right and so you that's how you balance the cast out with a sus- series of suspects you uh Columbo, well, it's, it's Columbo in... always said this whenever someone goes Columbo you don't have any evidence and he goes I've got means motive opportunity those are the three things to hang you right <laughs> and um so what you what, what that means is the means means you have the capacity to actually do it the motive you want to do it and the opportunity you actually had the chance to do it. So, like for example, someone could own a gun and want to kill someone, but they never have the opportunity to kill them. Mm. So therefore, they can't be the murderer, right? So you once you get all three, then you go, it's got to be that person. What's interesting about Orient Express that um, it's, the, it's the only point you um, I didn't correct you in the synopsis, um, but he doesn't know that all twelve people are connected uh, until the until very the very end. end. Yeah. Until the very very end. As he's going through and interviewing them, he realises that certain people are. Yeah. So he discovers their motive. Yeah. But still no one's got the opportunity because they've all got alibis. Right, exactly. At least those key suspects. I wonder, alibis, if you, yeah. I wonder if you went back and looked at the other characters uh, that he doesn't discover until the very end, yeah. whether they might have had an opportunity but no motive, at yeah, least in his possibly. eyes. But yeah, that's, that's what you've got to do. You've got to have the, the, the suspects. And of course, like different detectives... Or solve crimes differently. So Poirot, very much, very typically with Poirot, the opening of the film, uh, opening of the story rather, is everyone telling Poirot why they will ki- why the person, like, because the person isn't dead yet, mm. but you find out why everyone wanted them dead. And then Poirot goes through the timeline to work out who had the means and opportunity to do it. Mm. Uh, that's typically how it goes. But Orient Express, actually, you don't know that anyone has a motive because they're all supposed to be strangers. Yeah. So as it builds up, you see, because it would be too much, like, how oh, they're all on the train, they all know each other, and so it's just like, it's t- it's too much, right? So by having it that way, you think they're strangers, and then slowly you start to realise, oh no, this is actually a full-on, like, premeditated conspiracy to mm. murder this guy. One of the nice things, by the way, about the Finney one is um, the op- it opens with the Armstrong kidnapping. Uh, and it's, you see the Armstrong kidnapping happening and as it does um, newspaper you know the newspaper twirly thing flies at the, cap, the mm. screen so you see the aftermath of it as it's happening and then it goes five years later and then it does the the thing which was uh, as a kid I always remember that was freaked me out because it was always so dark and scary and I remember as a kid also wondering why are they showing this to us yeah because I never understood what that had to do with anything else than later on they explained to you oh it's Cassetti and everything mm. um but uh, yeah, the the um, the orange. So anyway, that's how murder mysteries basically work, right? You uh, you have the crime happen, but you don't know who did it. But there's people who could have, and then you watch the detective try 
and sol- work out who done it and then the great joy is just before they reveal who done it and why done it and how done it you have just just they do it just before you would have got it you know it's like the the closer you find out to them revealing the happier you are so this is part of the reason I loved this movie. Go on. The way he was doing the parlor scene and yeah. he gives the first theory. Yeah. Um, and then he pauses. Yeah. And the, the, a significant pause, he's like, but. Yeah. And I, I actually paused the movie yeah. because I hadn't worked it out at that point. I paused the movie and I turned to Hannah. I was like, I, I need to work this out. I need to try and figure this out. So I just took 20 seconds and that's when I went, I started listing the things. I was like, they have to make you suspect everybody. They've given us the key clue already and the hands <laughs> eyes are lighting up. And I was like, why would they make you suspect? <gasps> oh, me and my mind. So it was, a, it was a real joy, like a real rush to suddenly realise, oh man, yeah, it's, they but that, did it. That's the joy of it, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's it. But like, but it's true. Like, if you work it out, okay, a little before, it's okay. Hmm. If you work it out a little after, that's okay. But if like they explain it to you and you go, I don't get it, that's <laughs> rubbish, right? And if like they go, and oh my god, this person is dead, and you go, no, I know I did it. That's also not fun, right? You want it as close to the reveal as possible. That's the satisfying moment. It's okay if they're a little ahead of you. It's okay if they're a little slower than you, but there is at that moment. There's that's a when you want there's it. a movie that came out. Uh, well, we only watched it this year. I presume it came out last year. Uh, the Limehouse Golem. I haven't seen that. I you really wanted wanted yeah. to until you mentioned that it's not good. Well, it's not good for that reason because you work it out too early. You work it out so early, I'm so excited, so very, very I, I early. Honestly, I can't remember what the film is about. I remember I saw a trailer for it, and I went, "I'm going to get watch that with Stu," <laughs> and uh, I haven't seen it. Well, you know, Bill, Bill Nye is terrific. Yes, Bill Nye is in it. Isn't and it? I could, yeah, I could watch him in anything. Um, but but I, you see, I love, you know, just... I love murder mysteries. Uh, there's a film. Uh, I think it's called The Raven. I think it's called The Raven, starring uh, John Cusack. He plays yeah, Edgar yeah, Allan yeah. Poe. I was going to say, it's a Poe thing, isn't it? Yeah, and do you know how Poe died? They don't know. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a really fascinating thing, because yeah. apparently he was found, he was seen at different points in Baltimore, uh, mumbling, and then they found him dead. Really? Yeah, it's a really weird way he died. And uh, the one of the theories is that at that time, people would get people who were drunk, take them to voting polls to vote mm. multiple times. So that's why he was in different places because they were driving him around and stuff. Mm. No one really knows how he died. And so, you know, I was like, oh, it's a murder mystery about how... Po- oh, it's rubbish. Oh. <laughs> it's just dull. It's, it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, we don't have a good mystery, so we're going to make it more and more complicated. I see. Um, and one of the beautiful things about Orient Express, because you have to remember this was written in the 30s. This is, mm. When people write murder mysteries, they're either intentionally or unintentionally copying Agatha Christie. And one of the great things about Orange Express is there's this huge abundance of clues at the beginning. And Poirot is like, there's too many clues, right? And then, he, you have, so you have to work out which of the clues are real, which of the clues are red herrings, right? And you start playing around with that. And so the crime seems really complex, but actually it's about passing away the unnecessary information to get to the result, mm. as opposed to... Let's just dump more stuff and more extravagance and have a cat and mouse thing at the end. I kind of blame Conan Doyle for this. <laughs> um, of course, Conan Doyle started it before Christie. How stupid am I? Did he? Yeah, of course, Conan Doyle predates Christie. Okay. But like 30 years, 40 years, something like that. Um, 
uh, because Conan Doyle was also one of the things that he did was he used Sherlock multiple times. Before that, people didn't do that. People would write a story with the character, and that was it. But Conan Doyle was writing murder mysteries, and he was like, "He, I don't have to invent a new detective. I can use the same one." So he kept using the same one. And after he, and the Sherlock story's good. Yeah, and after he kills um, Sherlock in the fight with Moriarty. He was like, hey, I'm done with Sherlock. And then years later, he came up with The Hound of the Baskervilles. And he went, this is a great... I really like this idea for a murder mystery. Oh, I have to invent a detective. Wait a minute. I'll just say it happened before the fight with Moriarty. <laughs> so he invented the first prequel, in a way. <laughs> right? So, uh, so of course, this is why Agatha Christie had Poirot and Marple. Right. Were her two big ones that she kept going back to. Um but Conan Doyle, um, what he would do is he would often have something that seemed like a very mundane thing and then Sherlock would find clues in it and it would become more and more complex and then typically Sherlock likes to end with like a bit of a duel yeah. at the end. Um, and that sort of pattern, that structure, is something that people copy a lot. But you can't do it. It's really hard to do. <laughs> Even the people who write Sherlock can't do it. Oh, the Sherlock movies. The Sherlock TV series. They did oh, it. For, the they did series. it for two ah, two yeah. seasons, and then they couldn't do it anymore. The first, wasn't the first season very good. Well, they only had three episodes per season, and uh, season one, like the first and last episodes, were really good. The second one was okay. The second season they had a similar thing. The third season they had a similar thing, but by the time the fourth season, it was like, oh, we're just bored. But um, but it's it's one of those things where you're like, we're going to keep making it more complex. The motivations are more complex. Um. You see, when it comes to murder mysteries, there's really two ways you do it. You either go the sort of Agatha Christie, Conan Doyle type thing, where it's somewhat complex crime with a simple motive, right? That you slowly sort of unpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you have a um, yeah, complex crime, simple motive. Or you go the Raymond Chandler, hard-boiled detective, where you have a simple murder with a really complex motive. Mm-hmm. The reason you do it one of those two ways is when you're intriguing the audience, you've got to keep their focus on what they don't know. You've got to make they've got to know what they don't know. You can't focus the audience if everything is complex. If the murder is complex and the motive is complex, yeah, you, no, it's it's too much. Yeah. The audience can't focus. Mm. It's not that like it's not like um, the audience can't handle complexity. It's that no, if you're saying the murder is really complex and they're too busy working out who the means and opportunity, right? But if you then make the motive really complex, then suddenly they're now focusing on everything and they get lost. They mm. forget what clues for what. So you generally typically focus in one of two directions. And in fact, if you have a really good murder mystery, you don't need to overcomplicate it because it's a really good mystery. Because mm. um, what makes it a good mystery is that it is compelling enough that you want to solve it, not that it's complex enough that you can't. Right? There's there's a yeah. big difference, you know? Um, so that's... So, you know, I, I love murder mysteries, but I've seen so many bad ones. Well, And Agatha Christie is just brilliant. Let's dig further into... And as I've it, said, this isn't even my fam- favourite Christie. My favourite Christie is the ABC murders. Which we can maybe do another time. Maybe. Because <laughs> uh, Bass showed me to that. Uh, showed me to that? Showed that to me last week, and that is great. Yeah, it is. I mean, my yeah. only problem with it is it's, <laughs> it's BBC budget. 
I think it's ITV. Oh, ITV. So I even less. BBC, I apologise. No, this is even worse. It's ITV. Uh, yeah, there's a bit where they're walking down a street and you went, yeah, Poirot's really observant, but doesn't observe the fact that he's clearly walking around in the 1990s. Yeah. Like, silence, Luke. <laughs> it's like this freshly tarmacked pavement. Silence. <laughs> They've, like, covered potholes and stuff. Yeah, but you didn't notice the sort of the plastic PVC windows in one of the houses. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, it was, wow. like, quite obviously there. And, like, literally the same scene and you didn't notice that. I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell. <laughs> um, okay, well, let, let's, yeah, let's dig deeper into Orient Express. Uh, you want to talk about stakes? Stakes? Stakes are relative. Oh, oh, yeah. So, um, one of the complaints, one of the reasons murder mysteries kind of fall out of fashion, people love them, but they do fall out of fashion, particularly with critics. So you, you were talking about how this got like 57% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and I'm shocked. Like that I, I'm shocked, shocked I, to discover shocked. there's gambling going on in here. I love this movie. Everybody else should love this movie. I'm shocked that Rotten Tomatoes doesn't accurately reflect the film. <laughs> It's just ridiculous, Rotten Tomatoes. It's nonsense. Uh, this is what happens when you get a computer to tell you what to think, right? <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, th- but the reason critics will generally like say is because murder mysteries don't really—they're not really about anything, right? They're kind of a puzzle, and uh, they're about one person dying and who done it, and it's very small stakes. And in fact. Uh, because of Agatha Christie, it became more and more of a sort of parlour game where you had a bunch of really rich people in a mansion that was surrounded by black spiral dancers and the storm, so no one could leave the mansion, right? And um, they're trapped in the mansion and the police are there and like, who killed them? And then they would go through their thing. You know, it's like a dinner party type thing. It became somewhat sanitary in that sense. And... uh, and so critics just by and large think it's pointless, it's just a puzzle, and there's really nothing to it, and that's all there is to it. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a, like a crossword puzzle, you know, it's one of those kind of books type of things. It's not really art, it's not that. But um, what people sort of don't realise is the stakes in a story, they don't have to always be these sort of really huge, deep things. We don't have to have these deep psychological thrillers crime now often wants to go really deep into the psychology of people and it's like it doesn't have to be that way you don't have to have basically fractured broken people trying to solve a crime and you know that's what um i think noah hawley had a problem with when the when they did a fargo a tv series Mm. based on the film uh one of the things noah hawley loved about it was that these fargo the film and in in, in the TV shows were not about people who get destroyed because they face crime and getting hollowed out and and ruined it's the idea being like I love the way he phrased Fargo was this is the worst possible this is the worst day in Marge's life hmm. after that it's never going to be as bad as this like that's this is it this is the worst thing she'll ever face in her career that's it then it's back to normal so Marge can just carry on with her life. The idea being that, as opposed to, say, another kind of film, No Country for Old Men, which hollows out Tommy Lee Jones over the course of the story. Yeah. Right? But then you get other things like prisoners and stuff where people get completely destroyed as the result of the events. And that's becoming a sort of cliche, but critics love it because, you know, it's really deep pathos and tragedy, and actors love it because it's so, hmm. you know, raw. But it doesn't have to always be that way. You can write... You know, there's, there is a real joy in those short little novels 
you know, there's little novella type things that you would read on the beach and it's just a nice thing and it it's just entertaining and it's fun and it's small and it's light and it does what it does. That's how I described Orient Express yeah. to you after I'd seen it. And yeah. it's, it's like, you don't get a lot of movies like that where you no. just, you lap it up and then afterwards you're like, yes, yeah, this it, is great. Everyone's like, oh, I have to haunt you for the rest of your life. I was like, no, <laughs> you don't. Like, this isn't seven. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to be seven. Like, um, it, can, it, it, you know, it can, it can be much more light. And, uh, and Branagh really added or rather focused a lot on Poirot's decision, which was a really nice thing that he, that he did to make it have a bit more gravitas, which was that Poirot basically ends up at this crisis point. He sets him up very much as someone who's very orderly, strict, black and white type of thinker and points out, the film as a result really helps point out that there is a difference between legality and justice. And in fact, the best crime stories always do that. They always kind of say there's a difference between these two... St- these two things uh and so as a result the uh protagonist has to pick between what's legal and what's just mm. and uh that's always a much more interesting choice and uh he really put that to the f- to the fore in his uh adaptation of it um which was i think a really i think it was a really good choice um another film that does that is injustice for all the al pacino sort of black comedy is really that does that too they, they always stand up uh when you do that you don't have to. <laughs> no, but uh, it's it's a choice you can make. Yeah, it? but it's generally like it's a, it's normally really nice. It's um, like Columbo doesn't do that. No, but and then Columbo's the best, so take that for what you want. Sherlock doesn't do that, but then Sherlock isn't a policeman, so he doesn't care. Right. He doesn't care about legalities. He only cares about justice. Right. So it's only interesting when I say it's interesting and it works and it's a really great sign of a, like a hallmark of great crime writing. It's only because the character actually cares about the two. Right. If the character doesn't care about legality and he only cares about justice, which is what Sherlock does, then uh, you can't have that. He can just break the law as much as he wants. And mm. It's done. It's just a dimension, and that's it. Uh, Columbo, legality and justice are the same thing. Right. The law's never wrong for Columbo mm. because it's not about that. Right. I mean, you know who did it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so how's he going to get it? Right. And so, um, so it's not the same thing. But it's often a really nice thing you can do. What the the, the reason I loved that uh, his conflict at the end uh, is because it's not just an intellectual climax, you know, discovering who did it. Yeah. There's an emotional climax. Yeah. You see, your empathy with your empathy in these stories because you're you don't know enough and you're constantly working things out is very shallow. You don't have a lot of empathy with Poirot. No. Really. But. Brana, for me, the problem with with the, my only problem with that thing was, Brana played it like it was a really big thing for Poirot, mm. but it wasn't a really big thing for us. Does that make what, sense? The conflict at the end. Yeah, I don't know. I bought into it. No, I bought into it. I'm, but I'm saying his his acting was sort of undermotivated. If that makes sense, it was like he was oh, overplaying okay. it, mm. not because it wasn't the correct choice for Poirot. But because we just don't empathise enough with Poirot to feel that much okay. of what yeah. he's feeling. You see what I mean? So it yeah, feels yeah, like yeah. he's overplaying it. But if we were more in empathy with Poirot, uh, ironically, he could probably lessen it and we'd feel more. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's one of those things where it's like, I actually like the choice. I like what he did. But at the same time, I'm like, because he's also the director, mm. it's hard. But I'm thinking like if, if you had another director, they would have said, you know, a little less, a little less Kenneth. 
drop it down a little bit, dial it down a little bit. Down a scooch. Just down a scooch, because like, it, not because his acting is a is at flaw. It's simply because Poirot is one dimensional. He's a really was his dimension. Well, Poirot. I mean, actually, Branagh's Bran Poirot doesn't have it in the same way. But basically, his his thing is like he's a detective, but he's really sort of effete and fussy. Hmm. Like he's he's he does the whole joy of Poirot basically is that he is a guy who shouldn't have a stomach for murder. <laughs> right? That's yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. thing, right? He's he's too, like, oh, fussy, and he's too... He's got his cane, and he, everything has to be in the perfect place, and it's like, you are not going to be able to handle the sight of blood, are you? But then when blood comes into it, it's like, bam, I'm on this. I've solved it. I can stand up to anyone in this room. You'll all shut up when I tell you to shut up, because I'm a cop, and I'm a beat cop, because he used to be a beat cop. That's his backstory. And you'll do what I tell you. Right, so he's actually a hard ass, but he doesn't appear to be. He appears to be just a rather effete, non-threatening gentleman. But he's one of the most dangerous policemen that's in the world, the, right? That's the nice touch Branagh puts on it yes. as well. Is that um, in the uh, what what the ABC one? Who played um, David Suchet? David Suchet. Uh, David Suchet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so his his is very proper and um you know I don't, very fussy very fussy mm. um and you get like that wonderful bit where he's washing the plate again and again right? <laughs> uh, there's a scene in abc murders where hastings is washing a plate and they're so distracted by the murders hastings hasn't washed the plate properly and he hands it to poirot and the two of them aren't missing a beat in the dialogue but poirot looks at it and passes it back and hastings just washes it again without being art without saying anything yeah. they carry on talking and they do that three four times <laughs> Uh, but Branner's uh, at the beginning. He steps in uh, horse manure or cow yes, manure. Yes, he does. Yeah, he uh, yeah. steps in it, looks down, and you think, okay, clearly he's yeah. going to be fussed by this. He's going to want to clean, etc. Yeah. Uh, and he just thinks for a moment, and then steps in it with his other shoe. Yes, yeah, so, so it's matches. Balance. So it's balanced. So exactly. It's, it's more about balance. I thought that was rather lovely. Than yeah. I, that opening scene where he's in Baghdad, right? Yeah. I, I he was doing that. I'm like, he's a he's he's a beautiful part. <laughs> like I was just I was so I was worried like you know how good a Poirot will he be I love Poirot it's like he's excellent he's such a good Poirot I'm happy to watch him be Poirot for the rest of his career like I love like David Suchet's done he's finished it mm. he's done all the he's done every Agatha Christie story really? as Poirot yeah like he's done like 60 or something I don't know so he's done them all he's done he's done The Hollow which I know doesn't have Poirot in because we did it as a play Right, if you remember, we did the hollow. I you weren't in it. That. No, I wasn't. But we did that. We did the hollow, and Poirot's not in the hollow. But they did the hollow with David Suchet as Poirot, and I remember watching the episode. And I'm like, I'm having flashbacks because they're saying lines that we rehearsed <laughs> again and again. But um, so I'm happy for 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 Brenner to be Poirot mm. now. I love it. Uh, but yeah, that stuff. So he, yeah, he's got that same thing of like you don't think he should. He, he's he's kind of. He, yeah, you don't think he'll have the stomach for murder. And for chaos. And Branagh, even though he makes him a bit of a badass, mm. right, he makes him kind of physical, he does preserve that by having him just be someone who's so clinical about left and right. So he, he that whole sense of, like, you don't feel Poirot can stomach murder is works because this murder is, is about someone who should have been hanged, right? <laughs> or who should have, he, like, because his accomplice got electrocuted, hanged. He's dead. Right, mm. the state killed him. This guy, uh, Poirot, was hired to try and solve the case, and he couldn't solve the case. So Poirot already thinks Cassetti should be dead, right? So in a way, what's he even trying to solve? And it 
it gets annoying at him. There's that wonderful bit. I love that. You know the bit? The bit I love? Yeah. Where he's going like, your books, they are full of the... What is the word? The English? Sweet. Fudge? Fudge. They are full of the fudge. <laughs> it's like you fudged your books. They are full of the fudge. Like that stuff. He's just getting more and more irate about it. And at the end, it's like, I, this is a crime, but I have to let it go. Mm. Because that's not just. And so he makes it work. Do you think... Would it be true to say that we empathise more with... Uh, Poirot or Brands Poirot at the end of the movie as opposed to the beginning I would think so yeah you definitely that's typically true of everyone though. you empathise more as the story goes on right you think I've never thought about it so yeah there's, there's literally nothing you couldn't say therefore time has passed <laughs> things happen right no, but you always get more empathy for characters they go through I mean sometimes you lose empathy for characters they go through but like for protagonists yeah you're always more empathetic I thought it was more like um uh, I, I mean, clearly in TV series, that's that's the case. But I I always figured that like the more you add, the more dimensions you add, the more you become yeah, an empathy. Yeah, but you with see character. more dimensions, and the dimensions deepen as the story progresses. Like sure. you're more, in more empathy with Luke at the end of it of Star Wars than you're at the beginning, right? Unless you're a fanboy. Well, you you ha- you can't be a fanboy the first time you see it. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Have you talked about murder mysteries as puzzles? I think I mentioned that they are puzzles. Yeah, I said that's why critics talk down to them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um. Then I want you to uh to elaborate on uh the role of a victim. Oh yeah. So this is this is another th- thing. Um. One of the reasons that these become sort of parlor games and they become very emotionally uninteresting when you're watching something like Murder She Wrote or um. Ellery Queen or something. As as fun as those things might be, they're really kind of not stories anymore. They're kind of just a puzzle that you're supposed to figure out. Um, is when the emotional impact is so lessened because there's no real victim anymore. Because what you do in typical murder mystery fashion is this. A character walks on who you hate because everyone hates them, right? And they are a horrible person and every scene they're in is them upsetting everyone around them, okay, and angering everyone else. You've seen it. You've seen this cliche a thousand times. Character walks in, and he goes like, and the character's like, hey, damn it, I'm going to do, he just does something needlessly cruel for no reason. Like, I'm taking away all your candy. And the person goes, I'll kill you one of these days, like that. And he goes, nice try. And then it cuts to them doing the exact same thing, but with another person, right? So you've watched like half a dozen people say, I'll kill you. And then the guy turns up dead. And then the detective is like, well, which of you all said you'd kill him? Which one is it? Right. And you've done that. There's no real victim in that story because yes, technically someone has died and is the victim of a crime, but really you're happy they're dead because they're jerks. And the the people who uh, are related to them and who knew them aren't sad that they're dead because everyone hated them. They're all suspects. So you have this problem where there's no real victim. And so you have a, a cop, trying to, or a detective rather, trying to catch a criminal. And because there's no real victim, it you don't you don't care if they catch him. See what I mean? Think about it. If there's literally no victim, I, the criminal doesn't commit a crime, you're not going to be interested in whether or not the detective catches them for what. Right? Like, they didn't commit a crime. The detective can't catch you if you don't commit a crime. If someone commits a crime, but you are happy that they did it, and you don't care, and, like, it doesn't matter to you, and it's like, the guy who died deserved it, right? 
then it's the same thing. It's fundamentally the same thing. You just don't care what how it turns out, and it becomes very boring. And it's nice as a puzzle to try and work out. You know, those locked room mysteries. You know, the guy is is hanging uh, from the roof in a locked room, and there's a puddle of water on the floor. How what? How did he die? They say, oh, he got a he got a brick of ice, and he stood on the ice, and the ice melted, and that let him hang himself. But like, it's fun to kind of crack mm. those things, but that's not what you want out of a story in that way. And so, um, so what, what Agatha Christie does quite nicely here is she has that thing where at the beginning, you don't know why anyone want to kill him. Then it turns out, oh yeah, everyone should want to kill him. I'm glad he's dead. And what she does is she turns the suspects, because you're expecting one of the suspects is going to turn out to be the criminal, right? So someone dies, they're the victim. The detective's trying to find the criminal. So, so one of the suspects will turn out to be a criminal. That's the, yeah, we get it. Whack the Christie does is she in the Murdering Express is she basically goes okay first of all the victim is a criminal these suspects are all the criminal but they're also really the real victim and so she just switches it completely over and it becomes very sort of emotionally more interesting because now as we're discovering who the criminal might be we're also discovering who the victims really are and at the end the the story basically says the real victims is not Cassetti. The real victims are those 12 people. And uh, the real criminal was Cassetti. And so justice has been served. Right? Uh, the detective now just has to let it happen. <laughs> and that's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great uh, trick. It's a really great one. And, um, uh, I mean, when you think about it, like she, as I say, she did this in the 30s, and you look at how that mystery unfolds and what she's doing, and you realize, like, yeah, there's a there's a reason Agatha Christie was Agatha Christie, right? Like, people now people can't do it. Like, I can't think of the last time like a murder mystery was really innovative in that sense. You know? Do you think it's the killing was really great? The killing was great. Oh boy, the critic killing right? was great. The killing was yeah. really great. Um, really terrific murder mystery. I'm sure there's another one off the top of my head. I can't think that's quite recent, but I can't think of what it is. Mm. Um. I, I'm sure there was a murder mystery I saw not that long ago that was really good. Killing is what I think when I realised that that was a convention uh, suspecting everybody because yeah. I mean that's... Oh, that's, Broadchurch was good. That's a 24 episode murder mystery. Yeah. And so you, you really do literally suspect everybody. And, and also it's the way that the, the detective solves that case is they pick up a lead and they run with it. Yeah. The, the, the way those detectives work they presume if they've got evidence to get someone it's probably because they did it. Yeah. And so what's so frustrating for them in the case is that they keep finding evidence. And it's not them. It's never them. It's like, well, who did it then? You know, because that's the thing. It's like, that shouldn't be the case. If you have a lead, nine times out of ten, it's that person. That's how it works, you know. And the fact that it's not the case and people are keeping all these secrets, but for other reasons. Um, And so, yeah, the killing was was excellent that was so really ki- good. killing you like but the killing the killing was really excellent in in the sense that it was done really well it was it's a really good story but i wouldn't say it's innovative in the sense of like just as a matter of execution like whoa all of them did it right, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. do you know what i mean it's like you i mean you think about this the abc murders the murder of roger acroyd etc etc she kept inverting the form she would just go like, I've got an idea of how to twist things. And then she would make it organic in the story. She would make a story that makes sense why they, these characters are doing it that way. Mm. And she kind of, I think, 
I think she kind of exhausted the form in that sense. Like, she just went like, okay, literally, who could be a suspect? All of them. Done. Okay. You know what I mean? It's like, she, you could imagine she wrote down, like, a, a list of every possible combination of suspect and criminal and all that stuff. And then started going like, okay, I'm going to tick off every single one of them. Because I can't think of any combination. Do you know what I mean? That hasn't been... Yeah. She in, in terms of modern ones that you'd recommend, Killing Broadchurch. Yeah, I like. Ones? I really, I really like the first season of Broadchurch. I haven't seen the third. Is that David okay. Tennant? David Tennant and Olivia Coleman, which I believe is on Netflix. Might be. I think. Might be. The, but the 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 first season of the Danish Killing, not the American one. No, the Danish, Danish one. Killing for Bridleson, uh is superb. Have you seen? Absolutely superb. Have you seen The Bridge? I have seen Bruin. <laughs> For Bilson, Bruin, and you know, I was I did a lecture and uh, in LA, and uh, a woman I have forgotten her name. She came up. She was talking to me, and I went, "You're Danish, aren't you?" She goes, "How did you know?" And I went, "I, I watch all these Danish shows," and I went, "Fehilville," like that. Which they and she was like, oh. I was like. They translate that as bloody hell. Does it not mean that? She goes, it is far worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know exactly what Fehilville is, but uh, yeah. Fehilville. Um, yeah, because I, 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 I love the Danish stuff. The, the Killing, the first season of The Killing, towards the end of that, I was watching it with my mum and we were watching five episodes a night. Oh really? Yeah, to just get to the wow. like, we couldn't take it. it. It's like we have to know who did it. We have to know. Yeah. We have to know. We have to know. So you're like five hours and <laughs> and even just like whatever. Let's bring in the pie. <laughs> We're just finishing this now. Like I think three days. We just like we can't take it anymore. Oh, we geez. have to just watch. <laughs> we have to watch it all. Something like that. The last ten episodes or so, we just burned through them. It was ridiculous. The guy that plays the uh, politician in that trolls. Trolls, yeah, who is Lars also, Mikkelsen? Yeah, who's also um, Mads Mikkelsen's brother. Uh, totally not Putin. Uh, in, yes, in House in of Cards. He's yeah. so good. He's also yeah. the best thing in Sherlock. He's oh, in. Really? He's in one episode of Sherlock at the end of season three, and he is better than Moriarty. <laughs> he's. They, I, they didn't realize how good a character that was. Uh, if they had, they wouldn't have killed him off. Oh, jeez, spoilers. Oh, don't, don't, the episode kind of spoils it for you. Uh, Curly said it best. He goes, I don't watch Sherlock Holmes. I watch Sherlock Holmes to watch him solve a crime, not shoot the criminal in the face. <laughs> right? Which is exactly it. It's like, he doesn't solve it. He just shoots him in the face. It's like, that's, right. not, that's not Sherlock. That's Dirty Harry. It's not Sherlock. But anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, Thrall's Hartman is the character he plays in there. Yeah. Um, okay, let's... More importantly, more importantly, Lars Mikkelsen took on Benedict Cumberbatch and Sherlock. Mads Mikkelsen took on Benedict Cumberbatch and Doctor Strange. Coincidence? They've got to team up. <laughs> think about it. Okay. You know I'm right. I am, and I'm trying not to. Um, Can't not think about it. Summarise, then. What do, we, what do we learn from Orient Express? What do we learn from it? What did we say we were going to learn from it? <laughs> I've forgotten. Your, um, your key point... Well, certainly before we started, and maybe it's uh, become slightly more nuanced, but yeah, your point before we started was that stakes were relative in uh, murder mysteries. Yeah. Is that the key takeaway, do you think? I, well, I think, the, I, think, I think it's important to go, like, you don't have to write the most important story ever written for it to be good. 
Right. I think I think um, you can have like there's lots of stories that are about very small things that are really really uh, wonderful, and I think a lot of times people kind of lose themselves trying to make something more and more important to justify the amount of time they're spending on it and so on and mm. they try, they think like if you up the stakes if you up the complexity if you up this it'll get better and it's like no 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 none of those things will mean it's getting better like um, Back to the Future is really small Back yeah. to the Future is the equivalent of the Orient Express for action right you know what I mean it's tiny it's the kind of thing you'd like you'd get a little hardback you know, you need light and type book and you'd read that and that's on the beach. Mm. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, that's what kind of thing it is and it's absolutely beautiful. It's just wonderful. It's just done. Joy, right? Yeah, it's done. So that is the kind of, my feeling is like, you just don't have to over, you don't have to try and oversell everything to make it the most important thing ever. Um, and, and like, with something like a murder mystery, uh, the mystery itself has to be interesting. You can't you can't get away by making throwing in curveballs and stuff. It's got to be germane. It's got to make sense mm. in that sense. And uh, yeah, and also you know don't set it with CGI. <laughs> I really like the train. I'm annoyed that the train was like clearly in a green screen. You want to go on the Orient Express? Don't I you? do. I do. And you want there to be a murder on there as well? There you? will be. There will be. If I go. <laughs> Recording this and releasing it to the world. <laughs> Probably not the best way to cover up a crime. Last thing they'll expect. Do you want to end with a Poirot impression? No. Really? I, I feel like you've been holding it in for 50 minutes. Oh, no, I really haven't. I'm not a very good Poirot. And also, uh, Albert Finney was not very good. Didn't have a very good impression. Or well, accent. Okay, so do an impression of Albert Finney doing an impression of Poirot. No. <laughs> I don't want to. I can't I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, but yeah, I think... I think the other thing to take away from it, I guess, is um, like if you're writing a murder mystery, definitely I would sit down and really break down what you do and don't know. Like I would really pay attention to exposition and when you know something, when you don't know something and take that apart. But also um, this idea of adapting something uh, has to have purpose. And one of the nice things about Orient Express is that um, this one of the things that's changed over time is we focus more and more on victims in crime stories crime stories are more and more about victims and uh, how crime destroys people's lives um, and how people just don't recover from it um, and the murder on the Orient Express is a perfect uh, Agatha Christie story for that it's probably the only real Agatha Christie story where you can really focus on the victims mm. and focus on Poirot's sort of this, this idea, particularly today, where we feel like the justice system is corrupt. Because you have all these sort of things where, like, you know... Um, what was it someone recently said in America? Uh, uh, some, some American politician, she said, uh, New York has to legalize marijuana because, essentially, for white people, it already is legal. <laughs> right? And... Um, so this idea that the, the justice system isn't fair, it's very corrupt. We focus more and more on the victims because victims now have a lot more access to being able to being heard. They can just tweet about things and so on. We have a lot of trial by media as well. Mm. So focusing on that makes a lot of sense. And sort of it keeps the spirit of it. But it focuses on something that was already in Orient Express. 
but it emphasizes that more so it's more resonant with us as opposed to rewriting it do you know what i mean it, that's something that was already there but we're gonna now brano's like well, i'm gonna emphasize on the plight of the victims much more than christy did because that's more interesting i guess to us these days and also because i've got this incredible cast and i want them all to act mm. right so i want them all to really feel this so i'm going to focus more on their pain and more on this more on that and um and that works and that works really well and it gives it a sort of as i say it updates it but doesn't actually change anything mm. which is a, a really nice way of doing it but um so I, I think like as an as an adaptation that's interesting and the other thing to think about as well um is that we forget that uh capital punishment for poirot that's what poirot did like poirot got people killed you understand like when he caught someone that person is going to is going to get hanged or electrocuted they're dead that's it they're done it's a capital offense murder uh, so and it, like there's no way these people are going to spend time in jail and maybe get out one day or get off with good behavior that these people are going to die within a you mm. know a few weeks or something um so uh poirot that that becomes more prominent when you realize that in this situation poirot like legally these 12 people are going to be put to death and so he's let 12 people live because this Cassetti guy deserved to die, etc. So it's a much bigger choice for him. Um, and so um, this idea of... So, you know, I, I think it's just like... That's an aspect of Poirot that we might not think about. Because for Christie, she was writing it at that time. Capital punishment was the norm. She, that wouldn't have been a big deal for her. Do you know what I mean? She might... I don't know what her personal views on capital punishment were. But... It wouldn't, but for us now, it's a very controversial topic. Hmm. Whether or not it's even allowable in principle, let alone in actuality. I mean, there are certain crimes where you can get it, but certain crimes where it's allowed to be an option, etc. There's, there's shades of it now. Right? Hmm. Back then, there wasn't. So, updating it, paying attention to sort of what matters more to us as a culture now, but at the same time, not just rechanging things for the sake of it. It's just bringing certain things out, emphasizing on certain aspects that are more resonant that's i thought really nice and if you were adapting something you'd want to especially if it's out of time you'd want to think about that some that's something i don't think the albert finney uh, version really understood because it was set it was made in 1974 uh and yeah. it just feels like a period piece like people are playing dress up almost uh whereas the orient express Branagh's one doesn't it feels like an actual tale about morality and mm. justice so anyway that's what I think. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>